The Lord be with you. And also with you. Lift up your hearts. We gather on this fourth Sunday after Pentecost to worship God in word and song, in singing and silence, in spirit and in truth. My name is the Reverend Dr. Jessica Chica, and I have the privilege of serving as university chaplain for international students here at Marsh Chapel. Dean Hill is away this week and greets each of you warmly. Today we continue our national summer preaching series on Matthew and the Costs of Discipleship. It is my pleasure to welcome back to Marsh Chapel some of our extended family, the Reverend Dr. Jennifer Quigley and the Reverend Dr. Soren Hessler. Reverend Dr. Quigley is currently Assistant Professor of New Testament at Vanderbilt Divinity School, and Reverend Dr. Hessler is currently the Director of Recruitment at Admissions at Vanderbilt Divinity School. Both RVU alumni and former chapel associates here at Marsh Chapel. Welcome back, Jen and Soren. We remind members of our in-person Marsh Chapel community that next Sunday, July 2nd, after the service, we will have our annual summer cookout on the VU Beach right behind the chapel. This event is catered, so no need to bring anything. Just bring yourself and a friend. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. As you are able, please stand.
Let us pray together. O Lord, make us have perpetual love and reverence for your holy name. For you never fail to help and govern those whom you have set upon the sure foundation of your loving kindness. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Please be seated. Blessed Holy Trinity, one God, who greets us in this and every season, whose word never fails, whose promise is sure. In our moment of confession, as the choir guides us, we remember the encouragement of the scripture, pray at all times in the spirit, with prayer and supplication, supplication for all the saints. In supplication for all, we confess our sin and recognize our need for contrition, confession, and lament, awaiting the peace and pardon of Almighty God, trusting in the peace and pardon of Almighty God. hear the good news. If we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thanks be to God. A lesson from the book of Genesis, chapter 21, verses 8 through 21. The child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian whom she had borne to Abraham, playing with her son Isaac. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not inherit along with my son Isaac. The matter was very distressing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Do not be distressed because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, Do as she tells you, for it is through Isaac that offspring shall be named for you. 
As for the son of the slave woman, I will make a nation of him also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered about in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she cast the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bowshot. For she said, Do not let me look on the death of, of the child. As she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Do not be afraid, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Come, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make a great nation of him. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. She went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother got a wife for him from the land of Egypt. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
A lesson from St. Paul's Epistle to the Romans, chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. Should we continue in sin in order that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin go on living in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him by baptism into death, so that, just as Christ Jesus was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we, might, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be destroyed and we might no longer be enslaved to sin. For whoever has died is free from sin. But if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. The death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please join me in a responsive reading of Psalm 86 after the antiphon. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am devoted to you. Save your servants who trust in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all day long. Gladden the soul of your servants, for to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call on you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my cry of supplication. In the day of my trouble I call on you, for you will answer me. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and bow down before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant. Save the child of your serving girl. Show me a sign of your favor, so that those who hate me may see it and be put to shame. Because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. Please rise as you are able for a singing of the Gloria Patri and the Gospel lesson.
our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Matthew, chapter 10, verses 24 through 39. Glory to you, O Lord. A disciple is not above the teacher, nor a slave above the master. It is enough for the disciple to be like the teacher, and a slave like the master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered up that will not be uncovered, and nothing secret that will not become known. What I say to you in the dark, tell in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim from the housetop. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. And even the hairs of your head are all counted. So do not be afraid. You are of more value than many sparrows. Everyone, therefore, who acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before others, I also will deny before my Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and one's foes will be members of one's own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up the cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Those who find their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Please be seated. Good morning, Marsh Chapel. It is uh, so good to be with you and back in Boston. Our deep thanks to Bob, Jess, Karen, Jonathan, Scott, Justin, Heidi, and Chloe for the invitation to preach and the wonderful hospitality here at our beloved alma mater. It's been a few years since we've lived in Boston and served on the staff here, but we are still connected with you, even across the distance, and that is what community can do. Although I will say we seem to have brought the Nashville heat with us uh, today, so apologies. Um, Ooh, Soren, we just won the lectionary lottery for this summer preaching series, right, on Matthew and the cost of discipleship. We got swords, slavery, sin, separation from family. Ooh. Soren, how do you think about how to deal with difficult biblical passages? For nearly a decade, I've had the privilege of wrestling together with sacred texts with Jewish colleagues at Hebrew College. And for the last five years, I've navigated difficult Christian texts as the instructor of Hebrew College's Introduction to Christianity course. I've learned that we navigate difficult texts best when we do so openly and in community and in dialogue with one another. It is out of those shared commitments that I flew into Boston last Sunday to participate this past week in a concurrent meeting of the International Council of Christians and Jews, the ICCJ, and the Council of Centers on Jewish-Christian Relations, CCJR. The ICCJ is the umbrella organization of over 30 national Jewish-Christian dialogue organizations founded as a reaction to the Holocaust, the ICCJ and its member organizations worldwide over the past seven decades have been successfully engaged in the historic renewal of Jewish-Christian relations. In recent years, the ICCJ and its members have promoted Jewish-Christian dialogue 
and provide models for wider interfaith relations, particularly among Jews, Christians, and Muslims. The Council of Centers on Jewish-Christian Relations is an association of centers and institutes in the United States and Canada devoted to enhancing mutual understanding between Jews and Christians. It is dedicated to research, publication, educational programming, and interreligious dialogue that respect the religious integrity and self-understanding of the various strands of the Jewish and Christian traditions. Its members are committed to interreligious dialogue, the purpose of which is neither to undermine or to change the religious identity of the other, but rather seeks to be enriched by each other's religious lives and traditions. The gathering of approximately 150 people from over 20 countries this past week was hosted by Boston College, the Center for Jewish Christian Learning, and Hebrew College's Miller Center for Interreligious Learning and Leadership. The conference theme was Negotiating Multiple Identities, Implications for Interreligious Dialogue. And, of course, our meeting coincided with the national holiday of Juneteenth. There were plenary sessions and academic lectures, interactive workshops, which included shared text study, various opportunities for critical engagement with the arts, and excursions across the city for deeper learning. Marsh Chapel was one of several sites around the city that hosted conference participants this week. As I mentioned, there is much in Jewish and Christian sacred texts that we choose not to read often or altogether skip over in the regular cycles of our appointed weekly readings. One workshop I attended, titled By the Waters of Babylon, Intersectional Readings of a Classical Biblical Text, focused on Psalm 137 and shared several new multimedia resources on the themes of exile, homecoming, retribution, and justice from an international digital psalms project, the Book of Psalms, Calling Out of the Depths, hosted by the Miller Center at Hebrew College. Together, my colleagues, Dr. Andrew Davis, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Boston College, and Rabbi Orr Rose, the founding director of the Miller Center at Hebrew College, explored their shared study of the Psalms and their engagement with this Psalm and others with classrooms of Roman Catholic, Protestant, and Jewish students in the BTI over the last several years. We read together the full text of Psalm 137 in Hebrew and in English, and after the second reading of the Psalm, a participant in the workshop, an elderly Jewish woman, who has been involved in Jewish-Christian dialogue work for more than 50 years, exclaimed, I never knew the last two verses of this psalm. She had sung the other parts of the psalm in different Jewish liturgical contexts, but not these final two verses, which are translated in the NRSV as the following. Daughter of Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. These words are never set to music. The workshop participants wrestled with the value of these words. The leaders of the workshop shared various rationalizations of the text, including by Augustine, that the author of these words must not have meant them literally. Nevertheless, 
on their face. They are quite terrible. At best, these final verses give voice to the experience of rage in the midst of oppression. The workshop leaders attempted to contextualize the likely context of the authorship of the psalm, but ultimately concluded that a literal enactment of the exclamation of the psalm is inconsistent with the other values and commitments espoused by Jewish and Christian communities. In short, our sacred texts are the product of particular people and contexts. Sometimes we simply don't understand the full context of the text, and sometimes the texts themselves are just problematic. I raise this because I think that today's passage from Genesis merits at least a bit of attention today. Had it not been the chapel's summer practice to read all four lectionary texts, I would likely have omitted the Genesis text from the liturgy today. In any event, our Genesis text, in our Genesis text, our author recounts God as condoning Abraham's decision to cast out his wife's slave, Hagar, and the son she had born for Abraham. Sarah's ownership of Hagar and Abraham's sexual access to his wife's slave are perhaps issues for another day. But we have in Genesis today a recollection of God affirming Abraham's decision to cast out Hagar so that her son cannot inherit from Abraham alongside Abraham's other son, Isaac. The heroization of Abraham in the Genesis text is at one of its lowest points in today's text. It seems that the author can find no other satisfactory reason that Abraham would agree to cast out Hagar and their son than that God reassured Abraham that it was a good idea because God would bless and multiply Ishmael's offspring and make of him a great nation. This is not a flattering depiction of the divine. And Abraham is not winning any points in my book with his decision today. But the rest of the pericope recollects God coming to the aid of Hagar and Ishmael when their water had run out, and Hagar was certain that her young son would perish. God's mercy is on full display in the latter portion of the pericope. But that doesn't make the former portion any less problematic. As a United Methodist, I read scripture through the lenses of tradition, reason, and experience. Tradition and experience tell me that the text characterization of the divine in the initial verses of today's passage in Genesis is either simply wrong, inconsistent, incomplete, or perhaps asserted for some other narrative purpose. Plain readings of hard texts do a disservice to the complexity of the tradition and our own religious experience, which brings us to the Mithian text today. And in Matthew, what a difficult set of readings we have for the heat of these times, and what a difficult set of verses to make sense of. Here in Matthew 10, we find ourselves in the midst of instructions from Jesus to the disciples as he sends them out to travel from place to place, proclaiming the good news, healing, and casting out demons as they go. These logia, these sayings gathered here in Matthew 10, partially echo bits of Mark and Luke, but their compilation here and their full content are unique to Matthew's gospel. Matthew finds it useful to collect these teachings and present them without significant commentary. 
which leaves us to make sense of them. And they make about as much sense smushed together as the sayings you'll find in the Gospel of Thomas, a non-canonical gospel, in which the narratives are left out in favor of a simple series of sayings, such as, whoever finds the interpretation of these sayings will not experience death. Let him who seeks continue to seeking until he finds, and when he finds, he will become troubled, and when he becomes troubled, he will be astonished, and he will rule over the all. The point of sayings like these in Thomas, and like our passage in Matthew today, is to get them, faith-seeking understanding. The goal itself is the contemplation of them, and they are constantly elusive or troubling or astonishing, but there's also something powerful about them, and there's something eternal about them, or about the eternal, and they invite constant return. You might feel some of these passages in your bones these days. I know I do. After all, this is a time of deep division and polarization. You might have friends or family or former classmates or colleagues that you can't talk about politics with anymore or faith. Or maybe you can't talk to them as often without the conversation devolving into conspiracy theory or conflict. Or maybe you can't really talk at all. It's also a time of disaffiliation in in our own United Methodist denomination across the United States and to a much more limited extent around the world, some of the most conservative churches of the denomination have left. And I have heard texts like our gospel reading today used to justify these departures. I've heard interpretations of passages like Matthew 10 in these conversations along the lines of, isn't Jesus saying with verses about hating your family and division and persecution at the hands of religious authorities, seeking straight to our moments and endorsing disaffiliation? Isn't a text like Matthew about holding fast to a pure, unadulterated gospel that must be preserved and defended against constant attack? Isn't this text all about leaving? When hearing interpretations like these in the swirling disinformation amidst disaffiliation, I'm reminded of the words of the Reverend Dr. Christopher Stendhal, Lutheran bishop, Harvard Divinity School dean, and New Testament scholar. One of the last things he wrote before he died was a short essay titled, Why I Love the Bible. I assign it every year in my intro to the New Testament class. Stendhal says he loves the Bible because the Bible is about me and the Bible is not about me. Stendhal first loved the Bible because it was about him. It spoke to him. It formed his faith in the way he worshipped and prayed and the hymns he sang. It was personal. But then Stendhal learned to love the Bible because it was not about him. And here I quote him. This was the time when I was naive and arrogant enough to identify with the people I read about or whose writings I read. It was about many other things in the long run, much more interesting things. It was about many things in many distant lands from many distant ages. Now it spoke to me from a great distance of centuries and cultures deeply different from my own. And it began to be just by its difference that the fascination grew, that it had a way of saying to me, there are other ways of seeing and thinking and feeling and believing than you have taken for granted. And it just added to my love, for love is not just fascination. When I short-circuited my reading in those earlier days of having it just be about me, I slowly learned that this was a greedy way to deal with the riches of the scriptures. 
Now, I love the Bible, and I love wrestling with difficult texts because I'm honest about their distance. The Gospel of Matthew, written perhaps in 8090 CE, emerges from real crisis. Both what becomes Judaism and what becomes Christianity emerge in the aftermath of the destruction of the Second Temple in Jerusalem by the Romans in 70. The Gospel of Matthew vividly shares collective memory about this cataclysm, and those who compiled, circulated, and told these stories about Jesus did so with real risk in mind and communal memory. Some Christians around the world are more proximate to experiences like that today, but here in the United States, this is simply not the case, despite disinformation to the contrary. Hear it from this Christian United Methodist pastor, Christianity is not under attack in the United States in 2023. Living in a religiously pluralistic and democratic society with folks who disagree with you and facing consequences for your speech in public is not the same as religious persecution. Not getting to censor public libraries, public schools, and other public goods does not mean you are being silenced. Jesus and his disciples knew real persecution And those who first circulated our gospel today, some half century later, knew what could happen from a violent empire. But why is the constant appeal of a persecution narrative so appealing in Christianity? Any evidence to the contrary? The story of Christianity and the cross makes meaning out of loss, finds power even in its powerlessness, and finds a way to make community even when faced with suffering. These are some great building blocks for theology that help us find meaning, power, and community today. But the lens looks different when our backs aren't against the wall, to paraphrase Howard Thurman. These building blocks can be built out of true, to craft a theology that thinks that losing is winning and therefore being under threat means you are somehow blessed. Then there's an incentive to overlook whether you might be backing some other folks against the wall or to flip the script so that you are always the persecuted, faithful remnant constantly on defense against the world. Because I love the Bible and notice my distance from it, I have freedom to find proximity to it again, because Matthew calls us again to contemplate these teachings. Jen, I think Thurman's own reading of the Bible, his love of it, his distance from it and others' commentaries on it, and his ability to find proximity to it offer a glimpse of understanding the Mithean text today. On Tuesday, I had the privilege of convening and moderating a panel discussion about the life and work of the Reverend Howard Thurman, the distinguished African-American preacher, writer, educator, and pastor who played a key role in the civil rights movement and who was a groundbreaking interreligious and cross-cultural leader a leader that the Reverend Dr. Robert Allen Hill is fond of describing as 100 years ahead of his time 50 years ago. Together with three Thurman scholars, my colleagues Nick Bates, the recently appointed director of the Howard Thurman Center for Common Ground here at BU, the Reverend Dr. Shively T.J. Smith, assistant professor of New Testament at Boston University School of Theology, and my friend Rabbi Orr Rose, We screened a recent brief documentary about Thurman and discussed Thurman's work and legacy. On Friday, Orr published an article in Pathios reflecting on the panel and the long relationship of his mentor, Rabbi Zalman Shakhtar Shalomi, with Thurman and other Christian religious leaders. Orr writes, quote, I first learned of Howard Thurman 
some years ago from my beloved teacher, Rabbi Zalman Shachter Shalomi, founder of the Jewish Renewal Movement. Long before Reb Zalman, an informal title he preferred, emerged as a modern Jewish mystical sage and international religious figure, he began an idiosyncratic spiritual journey that took him from the more insular world of Chabad Lubavitch Hasidism into dialogue with an array of practitioners from the world's religions. Among his earliest and most influential interreligious and interracial interlocutors was Dean Thurman, whom he first met in 1955 as a graduate student at BU's School of Theology. By the end of that academic year, Reb Zalman lovingly referred to him as his black Rebbe, the customary term for a Hasidic master. In describing Thurman's influence on him, Reb Zalman said that his BU mentor caused him to redraw his reality map. To put it plainly, the emerging already offbeat Hasidic rabbi had not yet met a non-Jewish religious figure like Thurman, whose intellectual, pedagogical, and pastoral abilities he would come to admire deeply. In the ensuing years, Reb Zalman would meet other individuals and groups like the great Catholic monk and writer Thomas Merton and his Trappist community, who would further alter his perception of non-Jews and non-Jewish religious traditions. But part of what impressed Reb Zalman so much about Dean Thurman was the fact that his love and reverence for Jesus of Nazareth led him to conclude that all human beings are children of God and that there are many ways, all imperfect, to live meaningful and conscientious lives in relationship with the divine. End quote. Ultimately, I think that is what our Matthean text is getting at today. That deeply personal and personalist claim that we are all children of God draws my eye to two other places in our gospel today. And these are also at the heart of the gospel. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. And even the hairs on your head are all counted. So do not be afraid. You have more value than many sparrows. And a verse after our reading ends, sometimes the lectionary so limits our imagination. Right after this reading, Jesus says, Whoever welcomes me, you welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me, welcomes the one who sent me. Soren and I recently returned from our home conference, the West Ohio Annual Conference, the messy middle of United Methodism, which has always wrestled with politics, theology, ethics, in ways that represent the multiplicity of voices that occur when community gathers together. At this last annual conference, over 200 churches completed a process to leave the denomination, beginning, bringing our total numbers over the last year to about a quarter of our collective. But we also voted for the first time ever, and albeit aspirationally, to welcome LGBTQ plus folks into ministry in our conference. Such a vote would have been unheard of even five years ago. Over our days in the convention center in Dayton, we sat at several ten-person tables. There were over a hundred in the cavernous room. You never knew if you'd sat next to someone about to disaffiliate or someone in conference leadership, next to someone from the Appalachian foothills or the heart of Columbus. 
We met folks who represent the full spectrum of United Methodism there, and our conversations helped me to make sense with Matthew. On the day of disaffiliation votes, we sat next to an elderly white man in khakis and a polo shirt. He looked deeply grieved, and his tag identified him as a local pastor. Quietly and carefully in the breaks between votes, he told us he was a pastor for many years in the Wesleyan Church. He joined the United Methodist Church, he said, even though his full credentials wouldn't transfer, and he would spend a lifetime pastoring part-time and for lesser pay on the side of his main career. He did this all, he said, because I wanted to be at a bigger table. I wanted to be at a bigger table, and that's why, he told us, even though many friends were leaving and many churches in his rural part of the state were leaving, he and his small part-time congregation held fast the United Methodist Church. I want to be at a bigger table. Whoever welcomes you welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Even the hairs on your head are counted. Another day after historic votes on LGBTQ plus inclusion, we sat for the service of ordination and retirement next to an African-American man and woman who were lay leaders at their historically black church in Dayton. The woman was a retired teacher, which told us she meant she now had more time for work in the church. And during the service, it's customary to stand for any ordinand or retiree whose name is called if they've influenced you in some way. One of our longtime LGBTQ plus advocates, a pastor of the conference and a partnered now married gay man, retired this year, the same year the vote was taken. I made eye contact across my table when we all stood for David's retirement. He is our brother, she said quietly. We don't know who will sit with us at the Lord's table, but when I hear the verse about families divided, I hear it alongside these teachings. Whoever welcomes you welcomes me. Even the hairs of your head are all counted. And I think that following Jesus means that sometimes we might need to welcome folks that our parents might not like. And we might end up at a bigger table than we expect, with different people than we expect sitting around it. I'm not really sure I can make full sense of these verses today, Soren, but maybe I can make some sense with Matthew. Logia sayings like these aren't meant for single-use, single-meaning-only talismans, no more than any other biblical or extra-biblical sayings that you might find meaningful. To paraphrase a parable, they are like a lost coin found again, turned over in the hand to notice a new glint, a rough edge, a smooth face, joy and delight and intense focus all at once. Do not be afraid. Even the hairs of your head are all counted. Whoever welcomes you welcomes me. I want to be at a bigger table. He is my brother. Let those who have ears to hear listen. Amen. Amen.
In Paul's letter to the Philippians, he advised, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. So let us heed his advice and pray. You are welcome to stand, to remain seated, or come forward to kneel at the altar rail. Now let us sing together hymn 473, Lead Me, Lord. God, our help in ages past, with all that is within us, we praise your holy name and give thanks for your boundless love and faithful mercy. We celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. Great is your faithfulness. For though we succumb to temptation, you are slow to anger and rich in love. Because of your great love, we are not consumed by sin. God of grace, we humbly bow before you and confess our sins. Forgive us, focus us, and open us so that the Holy Spirit can pour your love into our hearts. O God, our guide, we pray for your help and deliverance. Guide us so that we follow the example of your compassion and forgive as you forgive. Lead us not into the temptation of thinking that we can save ourselves through what we say or what we do. Deliver us from the evil of faithful self-reliance. Merciful God, forgive us. Abide with us, Holy Spirit, and help us to grow in faith with confidence and trust that our salvation is a gift through your grace. Abide with us so that we grow in spiritual wisdom and understand your will. Abide with us so that we may gain victory over the enemies we face daily, like envy, arrogance, and selfishness. Abide with us so that we are not indifferent to those in need. Abide with us so that the words from our mouths are words of compassion and encouragement. Abide with us, Lord, so that we give freely, forgive easily, and with boldness and courage act with love. We pray for our nation, its current leaders, and the people striving to become its next leaders. O oh God, our help for years to come, we ask you to fill them with the knowledge of your will through spiritual wisdom and understanding. Abide with them so that the words from their mouths and the meditations of their hearts are acceptable to you. God, our shelter, we ask for your comfort. We pray for those who are enduring droughts, floods, tornadoes, and extreme heat. Comfort them, Lord, and give them the strength to persevere. 
We pray for the people whose lives are affected by violence and oppression. Comfort them, Lord, and give them strength to endure and forgive. We pray for the sick. Comfort them, Lord, and give them the strength of your presence. O God, our eternal home, we pray for the dying and those who are mourning the loss of loved ones. Comfort them and give them the strength of faithful confidence. God, we know that you are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call on you. Give ear to us and hear our prayers, for we offer them sincerely and faithfully in the name of God, our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Amen. And now, as a community of faith, we join voices together to pray as our Lord taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. with gladness bring before the Lord the first of the fruit of the everything that God has given us.
merciful God, everything in heaven and earth belongs to you. We joyfully release what you have entrusted to us. May these gifts be signs of our whole lives, returned to you, dedicated to the healing and unity of all creation, through Jesus Christ. Amen. show warm and bright on you, your darkest night a star shine through, your dullest morn a radiance brew, and when dusk comes, God's hand to you. Go in peace, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. <laughs>